The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you have your Bibles this evening, I'd like you to open them to Exodus chapter 31, and we return to our study of the tabernacle tonight. It's been quite a while since we've been in this, and uh, so we're going to look at Exodus 31. Our subject is part three of the study of the workmen of the tabernacle, and these are the men that God chose to to make the tabernacle where Israel would worship during, during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and then also after they got out of the wilderness and into the land of Canaan, Uh, They worshipped at the tabernacle for about another 500 years until Solomon built the temple. Now, thus far, I hope that you have learned something good about God's selection of men and women uh, to work for him, the blessed privilege that it is to be used in God's service, to be employed by God, so to speak. That is the best and highest employment that you could ever have. It is truly a blessing that God uses us in his service. A few months ago, I was listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler. Uh, I'm not sure that you know who he is, but he's a fairly popular preacher today. has a very, very large church. I think he's in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. But in his sermon, he was making a point that I think should stick with all of us. Uh, it's something that, that we do teach here, of course, and that is that God... God's purpose is to glorify himself above all other considerations. The reason that that Chandler was preaching this sermon was because he was asked to preach in a place where uh, the type of preaching that the people would hear was more geared towards the individual, uh, towards uh, the building up self-esteem and those kinds of things. And, And so he made the point very, very clear that today's gospel is different from what we find in the scriptures, that today's gospel is a gospel of self-satisfaction, it's a gospel of self-empowerment, it's really the belief that God created all things for us rather than creating all things for the glory of Christ. And so they say that the highest priority for God is not his glory, but that we would be happy and fulfilled that everything revolves around us as if God intended to make us the center of his universe. You may remember over the course of the last few years that I've uh, talked about Robert Schuller and how he expressed his opinion, the late Robert Schuller expressed his opinion that that classical theology, that what I, what I would call simply orthodox Christianity, that classical theology is mistaken in making theology God-centered rather than man-centered. Uh, and uh, this morning when I used that, that term uh, anthropocentric, that people, uh, the, the, uh, people have the idea that, that uh, man is at the center of things, that's what that means, anthropocentric. Uh, pro- I can't even say it now. Never mind. Let's just talk. Let's say anthropology. Anthropology. Uh, when anthropology is substituted for theology, making man the center of everything, then we've really pretty much turned upside down 
what the Bible would have us to know and have us to recognize. And that is, and this was one of the points of Chandler's sermon, is that the highest priority all of the time is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And I would dare say that in our uh, long studies here that we've had of the tabernacle where we've talked about all this different type of, uh, these different typologies, that we have not found one type in all of the things that we've discussed that is geared towards the superiority of man. A type that says that man should be at the center of anything. No, it's always the supremacy of Christ and that he is to be the, the center of all things and everything is for his glory. But being chosen in God's service is the highest honor that we can have. Uh, there isn't a higher honor that you can have on the earth than being a servant of Jesus Christ. And there's not a higher honor that you will have in heaven than being a servant of Jesus Christ. That's what we're always going to be. The change from this life to the next life is a change from imperfect service to perfect service. And a change from imperfect worship to the perfect worship of God who must be glorified. So you, when you think about heaven, who could imagine that the light of heaven, the light of that eternal city is man and not Christ? If anthropology is God's focus, then this is what we would expect heaven to be, that it would be a greater display, a, more, a, a perfect display of man where God basks in our glory, not his. But again, God's design of everything is for himself. In other words, God is always going to promote those ways that magnify his preeminence. And so he will always require that we stay in the background where he is always in the foreground. Or you might say, God tells us, stay in your lane, bro. Uh, stay where you're supposed to be. Now the one then who understands that, one who knows God, always understands that he finds personal fulfillment in being nothing more than one of the living stones in God's spiritual house. So looking at the Old Testament and how God designed the tabernacle, we don't find anything that focuses on man. Man is in the picture only as it relates to God saving us to promote his greater glory. So we're not created, we weren't created to fill a man-sized, a man-shaped hole in God's heart. No, God is self-existent, God is self-satisfied, God does as well without us, out us as he does with us. But what he did do was to create us to love him and to honor him, and in the process of loving and honoring him, we benefit from it. So the choice of service in our text, as we talk about these men that God, God chose, God gifting man in extraordinary ways is to amplify his worship, make it a better greater display of his worship. Now, in the second verse of this text, Bezalel was chosen and given the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Uh, he was given the understanding to work with precious metals and gemstones and timber. And the purpose of it was that he might build a magnificent house that would picture the exalted Christ. And we notice Bezalel in the story only because God gave him something that he could do in his service. It wasn't to make a name for him because Bezalel was one among thousands of people whose name might never be mentioned except that he was singled out and gifted by God. And our salvation and service are the very same. You've got to think like this. Who are we except that God made us what we are? 
And that's exactly what the scripture says. Who are you? What are you that God didn't make you to be? Uh, so I was considering this a few days ago, and I was, I was thinking about the, the fellow that built this pulpit. And uh, he, was a, he is a fine craftsman. And I was very pleased when I, I went to look and see the, the finished product. Uh, and, and what is the pulpit for? I mean, why do we have this here? Is this standing here as a monument to the man who made it? Is this here because we want to make a tribute to that person who has such skill to make a pulpit like this? Well, well, certainly not. The reason that we did this is I wanted a design that was substantial. I wanted to something that would help us to focus on the Word of God. I wanted to be more evident that God's Word is central in this church. And wherever God's Word is central, Jesus Christ is central because He is the living Word. So like an Old Testament type, I, I look at this pulpit as something that symbolizes the Word prioritized. Uh, a symbol of how the Word has the power to change lives. And so I wanted a design that would do more to cover me up, to keep me hidden, something I could hide behind so that Christ would be seen, not me. Maybe to protect me a little bit from things you might throw at me as well. Uh, but I w that's for the purpose of it. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this pulpit, the man who made it, and the studies that we have here in the tabernacle, and these men that God chose. And uh, I was just thinking about how, how the pulpit has been minimized in many churches today. Some have taken the pulpit completely out of the church. And they've replaced it with a little stool that the pastor sits on and has a chat with the congregation. And if they don't have that, then they may have this little plastic thingy that they stand behind and put their book on. Uh, now, what I'm telling right now, this is my opinion, okay? This, this, this is my doctrine. Uh, understand that. And there's nothing that irritates me more than an acrylic pulpit. So you don't want to suggest that to me. But then there's the other, street, other extreme to this. I, I, I thought about, there's a church that I know of in the South Bay that the pastor was given a very ornate pulpit. And the purpose of it was to honor the pastor. And, and they did this because the pulpit was a replica of the one that was used by Jack Hiles before he died. And so they honored the pastor who stood in the image of Jack Hiles. So I thought about that. I mean, what, what, what do you mean? The pastor is created in the image of Jack Hiles? Those are things that blow my mind. And, and it certainly would miss the point of this Old Testament text where everything that's made in the tabernacle was made to exalt God. And so to exalt Aaron or Moses or Bezalel or Aholiab or anyone who, who made the magnificent furnishings or had a part of worship, with, worship of God, that's totally wrong, totally upside down. This is all about Jesus Christ. And then that brings me to thoughts of John the Baptist, and, uh, who was the forerunner of Christ. And he said of Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. And I think of Paul who said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And then he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so how would we ever turn that around to think that it's Old Testament or think that it's New Testament or it's biblical to honor preachers and to worship them as if they are God? Isn't that one of the lessons that we get from this text? The ability to serve is an ability given by God. And if that ability is funneled into the worship of people, then we have a gross misconduct of worship. 
So that's my little soapbox for this evening. Uh, now you know I hate stools. I hate acrylic pulpits. That's one of the reasons, Brother Dalton, that I took the chairs off the platform. And that's because I want us to see God, not man. I've, you, I've, I've told you so many times, and so I, I do get irritated by, by the platform sitters. And I just decided we just do away with that, and we'll preach the Word of God and sit down. Uh, let God be magnified. So that's, that's the Smith doctrine of church decorum. And you can take that for, for whatever you want. Now, uh, looking then at our text uh, uh, from the previous sermons, you are familiar with this text. So let me just read the first three verses again. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Now you go on from there, reading down to verse number 11, and you find the very and, uh, many and various materials for construction that are given. God gifted two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, to do the work. These are the men that are the overseers. Others assist in that work, but these are the two men that supervise all of the work that goes on. Very talented men. In fact, we noticed the last time that Bezalel was from Judah and Aholiab was from Dan. Those are the southernmost and the northernmost tribes, which shows that Israel inclusively is involved in the worship of God and the building of the tabernacle. So from top to bottom, all of them had a part in this, even if that part is just to bring materials for which it, from which it would be made. But God intends that all of Israel would have a part of that. So the participation of the entire nation shows that individuals are not the focus. These are all people that God has chosen, and all of this is designed to flow upwards. All of it's made, all the worship is made to flow upward into the stream of the worship of Jehovah God. Well, we've looked at two parts of this outline already. The first was that God selects the workmen. The second is that God equips the workmen. And so all of this is work that's done to elucidate Jesus Christ, who is called to do the work of the Father. His work includes redemption and judgment. His work is the building of the church. And then in our last lesson, we also saw that Christ was selected and that Christ himself was selected. In fact, you can go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and there you find that the word of God says he was ordained. He was ordained to the work that he was to do. So he was consecrated to the Father's will, to his service. And his example, the example of Christ shows that we are to never hold anything back from God. I'm going to emphasize this, and you'll see it a little bit more as we go through this. We're never to hold anything back from God. The service that he has called us to do, we are to do. We are to honor God with our service. Christ held nothing back. He, held, he didn't hold back the glories of heaven, and he didn't hold back his own life when he was called to give that in the service of God. He always did the Father's will. Well, before going on, I want to uh, drop back just a little bit to enhance our earlier studies with a few comments. When we were in the Fundamentals of the Faith study on Wednesday nights uh, for about two or three years, we, we had the opportunity to study the Holy Spirit, and we talked some about the spiritual gifts that God gives to the church. I don't want to go into that study this evening except to say 
uh, emphasizing what I said just a moment ago is that God gives every member of his church a gift. God gives every one of us a gift to be used in his service. And the gifts are, are given to magnify Christ. And as I just said, you are not to neglect the gift that God gives. I mean, this is what Paul told Timothy. He said to Timothy, don't neglect the gift that's in you. Whatever God has given you to do, you do it. Now, I, I don't think that you need to take a spiritual gifts test to discover your gift. I know there are some churches who do that. they got paperwork for you to fill out, and they examine all of that and run it through their, well, I don't know what they run it through, a computer, I don't know. And uh, it spits out your spiritual gift. I don't find anything like that in Scripture. We're not told to do that. But I think the way that we discover spiritual gifts is the first thing that we do is to get active in God's service. Just get started doing something. And as you work for the Lord, the spiritual gift begins to emerge. Now, when we talk about these kinds of spiritual gifts, we're not talking about the sign gifts. We're not speaking of, this is not speaking in tongues. This is not the gift of healing. It's not a gift of knowledge of things that you've never learned. But even though it's not those types of gifts, these gifts are substantial. They're substantial because that's what God uses to make the church work. It's what makes the, the church uh, accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. It's the way that things go. And again, we're not to neglect those gifts. This is for ministry. So this is why Paul said, don't neglect those gifts. So here, here's what happens. If you're a church member that, that normally, regularly misses the services of the church, then the only thing we could conclude is that it's very, very doubtful that whatever that gift is that God has given you is being used. Would you not say that? It would be very difficult for that gift to be used. And if you neglect your gift, quite frankly, that is a violation of the code of membership. And not only the code of membership, it's a violation of honoring Christ. Because that's what the gifts are given to, given to be used in the church to magnify Jesus Christ. Well, as we, as we discussed these spiritual gifts, uh, when we were in that study, we were, we were tasked with differentiating spiritual gifts from natural talents. So, I want to just talk a little bit tonight in the beginning of this sermon, how that God uses natural talents. And we'll discuss a little bit the differences. But I'd like to, to point out that God, in God's service, God also takes just the natural abilities that we have. He can take things that, that, you know, those natural abilities that you're born with, not necessarily specially gifted by the Spirit of God to do, but He takes natural abilities and, and they can be used in His service. I was reading from the uh, preacher's homiletic commentary which is an old commentary that most people have never even seen or even heard of. And I was reading about this passage, and I saw some, some great information, some great points on natural gifts. So I put these on your listening sheet tonight to share with you, and this is an addendum to our discussion. Uh, what about natural gifts? How does God use, and what's, what are natural gifts all about? Well, first of all, we say this, that natural gifts are discovered by grace. Natural gifts are discovered by grace. Bezalel and Aholiab were not clumsy men. They weren't men like me. Uh, that one day, God just had to zap them with some supernatural ability and then make something out of nothing. 
No, these are already talented men. They're all very, already very naturally, or they are naturally talented. And so what God did was to enhance their skills by what we read here, by injecting them with divine wisdom to know how to use those natural abilities to the, to the best service that God could have them to do. Now, you remember that we talked about how the men of Israel were bricklayers. Remember that discussion? Uh, all those years as slaves in Egypt, they were bricklayers. They weren't developing a lot of different skills to use. And so when it came time that Moses needed skilled labor, what was he to do? And especially this kind of skilled labor. What is he to do? Well, I think one of the places that you would start out with is, what about natural abilities? How do you discover the natural abilities that someone has? And we think of it this way, musicians and singers and artists that are used in the church. You know, I was thinking about Letha. Letha is very artistic. But Letha, or our musicians, or all these things that we do, there's none of us that does these things professionally. This is not the profession that we're in, but we are able to do these things just because we have a natural talent to do them. So the talents that we have are not supernatural. They're natural talents that are enhanced by God's grace whenever God decides that he needs them. So latent abilities that we have might be dormant for a time, but they are enhanced when the church comes to the place that God needs the gift. So our ladies and gentlemen that are, are, that are playing the instruments, they use that natural talent. They get better every week because it's infused with grace. It's God's grace that makes them better. And so how much more enjoyable is it to take the talent that God has given you and to use it in his service? And I mean like singing in the choir or being creative in a Sunday school class, playing one of the musical instruments. How, how, much, how much more enjoyable is it when you know that God's grace is in you that God is actually using you. God, you have service that you can do for the Almighty God. Why would we want to neglect that? Now we use that natural ability because God enhances that. Number two, natural gifts are directed by grace. Our, our first heading in this lesson was that God selects the workman. Usually we refer to this selection of God as being God's call. As preachers, we say that we have a call from God to the ministry. God might take a natural speaking ability that a man has and incorporate that into, into uh, uh, the preaching. And, and by his grace, he directs that towards the preaching of the gospel. But it's just as true that if you never stand behind the pulpit, that God directs you to the place that he wants to use you by his grace. We're called. And when we listen to his voice... His grace will direct you to the place where he wants you to serve. Now, many of you already know this because there are people that come to me and say, I believe God is leading me to do this. Well, how do they know that God's leading them to do this? Well, it's the grace of God, the voice that you hear, not an audible voice, but that, that call, that urge, that desire that you have, that is the grace of God working in you. God always works in grace. So let's not think that the only time that we ever see grace is when we got saved. Now we don't talk about grace anymore. And so we say, oh, grace is for salvation, not for service. That's wrong. Now we have grace to do the service of the Lord. Number three, natural gifts are enhanced by grace. I've mentioned that. But you think of the ability to play the piano, to, uh, understand certain things, understand technology. 
I remember uh, working with Jim Andrews a few years ago and we were installing a new router in the office and uh, I know a little bit about computers. I mean, I've worked with computers for years and years. I can do what I need to get done. But when it comes to networking, no. Uh, IP addresses, protocols, packets, all of those things, that just goes over my head. I don't understand that. But Jim Andrews has this ability. He knows that stuff. And I have no doubt that it started probably with just a natural gift. Some things we have to learn to do, but have you ever met someone who just sees, sees something, sees a problem and says, I can fix that. I know how to do that. So how do they know how to do that? I don't know. Just God gifts them with something. God gives them grace or something and they just know what to do next. So playing the piano, understanding networking, those are things that are done with human ability. And although very talented that people might be in doing, it's still human ability. So what happens when you take human ability and you press grace into it? Well, listen to this quote. The influence of God's Spirit gives our natural power a glow and a ripeness and force which they could not otherwise have. Have not holy men in all spheres realized a perfection and power of genius which they never could have reached had it not been for the inspiration of religion? So I know I don't have a natural gift for playing the piano. I don't have a natural gift for networking. And I know that the only glow I get is when I touch two wires that aren't supposed to be touched. Uh, but it makes no difference here. When that natural gift has grace added to it, out of that comes this crescendo of powerful blessings These, that emerges from the grace that God gives in the work that we do. Number four, natural gifts are sanctified by grace. Have you ever seen natural gifts that are used for evil purposes? Well, of course you have. There are some great singers in the world, aren't there? Uh, you, you hear great voices, beautiful voices, that are sometimes used to sing vulgar lyrics. Isn't that correct? And uh, talented musicians, don't they also play deafening music sometimes with satanic undertones? Sure they do. Now, I want you to bear with this illustration for just a minute. It's not a perfect illustration. Uh, most of you have heard of my good friend, Jimmy Swaggart. And uh, whatever you think of him, whatever you, you know, whatever you see him as, there's one thing that you have to admit. He is a marvelously gifted musician. His mind is wired that way. So he knew very, way back in the beginning of his ministry that he could use music to put him on the make a name for himself, draw crowds, whatever it might be. Uh, he, 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 so he just enhanced his dog and pony ministry show with music. I, I don't know if you know the history of Swaggart and who he is, but he has two cousins that are similarly gifted. One is Jerry Lee Lewis. You heard of Jerry Lee Lewis? The other is Mickey Gilley. And uh, these were young men who were friends, and they were all very gifted at playing the piano. In fact, it was Jerry Lee Lewis who taught the style to Jimmy Swaggart and Mickey Gilley. Well, those three young men took different turns in their life. Uh, Swaggart went to gospel music with a little prostitution thrown in. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis turned to rock and roll, and Mickey Gilley lost his dog and went to country music. So they, they, they had these, these different talents... Uh, they had these, these talents to play the piano, but they directed them in different ways. But uh, 
if you're looking at this, saying again that my illustration is not perfect, I should be able to say that since Swagger turned his towards the worship, to worship and, and, and towards God, that his gift became sanctified while the others, their gifts, were not sanctified. So if by some odd twist that Swaggart should be a Christian, uh, you could see how natural talents become radically different when God bathes that with grace. Now, what happened to Jerry Lee Lewis and Mickey Gilley, that's a different story. But had Swaggart, if he is truly a Christian, then maybe there's something in there that that natural talent that he has, God sanctified that and made it useful. Now, another quote. All the work of the world is for God, and every workman needs to be filled with God's Spirit so that all may be well and wisely done. So you can have all the natural ability in the world, and if the Spirit is not in it, it can't be used for God's service. It's just not going to amount to anything. Now, with those thoughts out of the way, I want to look finally at this. Our third observation of this outline is that God chooses the work for the workman. God chooses the work for the workman. Now, I don't intend to delve into the uh, doctrine of election tonight, only to say that there are arguments about election, and uh, some will say that election is not to salvation, that election is only to service. Or they might state it another way, that election is to sanctification. I'm not going to deal with all of that because I've made these points recently. Matt just did about a week or so ago. Um, that that I, I've made it very clear that salvation is God's choice from the creation of the world. But perhaps in those arguments, when we talk about God electing us to salvation, that we haven't emphasized enough that, yes, God also elects us to our service. That God's election is extensive. And it should be evident that if God elects us to our salvation, that also he elects us to our sanctification. And if you reverse that and you say God elects us to our sanctification, then you must also say that God elects us to our salvation because all the good gifts of God flow out of our salvation. You can't get to the sanctification without the salvation. So God's intention is that we should be saved and that we should serve. We don't choose the place of service. Now, we might have places of service that coincide with what we would like to do. And God lets us do those things. That happens a lot of times. But at other times, it doesn't. If you were to ask me 25 years ago, would you go to California to pastor a church? I would say, you must be a fruitcake. I'm not going there. A few days ago, I was reading about a young man and his wife who said they were called to go to Greenland as missionaries. And I'm thinking, no, no, not, I'm not going to Greenland as a missionary. Often I read a blog post from a missionary in Cameroon. And I say, no thanks, I'm not going to pick a poor African nation as my place of service. You leave it up to me, I'm probably not going there. Now I've thought about some things like Budapest. Jim Kinesis is no longer there. That, you know, Budapest, that's all right. Prague, Vienna, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. I've also thought about Portugal because I just recently learned that it's cheap to retire there. So maybe there. So if I pick my spot, I'm not going where there's headhunters and bugs and, and they don't have high-speed internet. I've got standards. You know, I, I'm not going to do that. So you wonder, well, how do missionaries end up in places like that? Well, it's not necessarily... 
I'd say very rarely because they chose that's where they wanted to go. How do they end up there? God calls them. God tells them. God selects the place for them to serve and they go there and they go gladly and willingly and joyfully because God has called them to that place. Otherwise, people just wouldn't do those things. We, we would stay right here at home where it's comfortable and preach here. That uh, seems like the easy thing to do. Now, in our text, God selected the workmen for the work. And they weren't free to do as they please. God, God didn't say, now you send me some workers, and when they get here, they can figure out what they're supposed to do. No, God has all this plan. All of this is determined, and the, workmen, the, the work is determined, and the workmen are determined. Now, what God does for every worker is to supply a manual for the work. This is not guesswork. It's all very carefully planned out. It's all in the manual so that the finished product comes out as God designed. Now, the tabernacle is God designed. That was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I think you probably already know where this is going, that we have a manual. That God has given something to instruct us on what we are to do. He's given us the Word of God. That in His Bible. That, that instructs us what we are to do, when we are to do it, and how we are to do it. And so as a church, we just don't wander around aimlessly trying to figure out what do we do next here? How, how do we make this thing happen here? How do we make the church grow, whatever it might be? But some think that's what you do. Because you have those who use shifting strategies, trial methods to try and make it work. And these trial methods are accepted or rejected depending upon their success. It's exactly the way the church growth movement works. It's not the gospel to them. It's not the gospel that will make this work. It's, it's, it's the product that we have. We, ha we have to take a corporate business model approach to this. We have got a product that we've got to sell to the people. And we've got to figure out what is the best way that we can convince them to buy what we have. That's what church growth is basically about today. Can we sell our product? But I've only found one strategy in scripture. Get in the pulpit. Preach the word. And depend on the Holy Spirit to convict hearts. Jesus said, you will be witnesses of me. That's his strategy. And that's the one that's worked for 2,000 years. I also find prayer in the instruction manual. And what I learned about prayer from the instruction manual is that the answers to prayer are never going to contradict what's already written in the Word. And so if we need answers about what to do, yes, pray about it, but always know this, you got a book for reference. You need to know what to do, go to the book. It'll tell you what to do. Now, let's look at it just a few minutes. We'll finish our time with this this afternoon. What does the book say? Well, first, the book tells us what are we to do. What are we to do? That's a good question. Now, our subject is the church, so we can confine ourselves to the primary work of the church. What are we to do? I think everybody in Berean knows this. We are to glorify God. That's the chief occupation as we wait on Christ to return. But you might still have a question, what are ways that we glorify God? What, what can we do to glorify God? Well, chief is Mark sixteen fifteen. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, as we look at Bezalel, he was commissioned to a work. He was commissioned to build the tabernacle to the glory of God. Well, similarly... God has commissioned his people. You know what we call it. We call it the Great Commission. 
And the Great Commission is also for the glory of God. It's to build Christ's church. Understanding, of course, we do know that Christ is the one who builds his church, but he uses human instrumentation to do it. That's where we come in. That's where we, um, we thank God that he's chosen us as his servants because he uses us to build his church. And the way that we do that, he just simply says, take the gospel where it's never been heard. Just go tell people about it, people who haven't heard about it. So our commission then is to preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to do everything that Christ commissioned us to do. And then we're told that the light of our good works will shine to the world. So witnessing and good works, those are methods that testify to the grace of God. So what is the church to do? Well, in our preaching, I'll say it's not for us to be political. It's not for the church to run the government. It's not for the church to crusade for social justice. Now, not that social justice is necessarily bad, but that gets in the way of the gospel and it obscures it. Now, many people think this is what Christianity is. Christianity is social justice. No, we're not opposed to social justice, but that's not the gospel of Christ. That's not what the church is commissioned to do. Social justice obscures the goal because it shifts the focus away from God. And so what happens is, with social justice, that the result is Schuler's mistaken anthropological view of man, the church, and what we are commissioned to do. Social justice focuses on man, not on God. Now, Christianity is not to be man-centered. It is to be God-centered. You ask, well, has Christianity impacted social justice? Certainly it has. But that's not what the church has been told to do. Secondly, when are we to do it? Now, the work is the gospel. It's to be preached to the world. When are we to do it? Did you know there are many things in the Bible that are timed? There is a time to do things. There's a specific time for them. There's that famous passage in Ecclesiastes that says, Oh, there is a time to every season and to every purpose under heaven. There is a time to be born, there is a time to die, there's a time to plant, there's a time to harvest, and so on. You know that passage. And the Bible even says that in the fullness of time that God sent forth his Son. In other words, it was at the right time, at a predetermined time. Well, the gospel also has a time. The scripture says, today, today is the day of salvation. The gospel doesn't have a wait time. It's always now, right now. In other words, you take every opportunity with the gospel. Jesus said to Matthew when he was sitting at the receipt of custom, there he was taking the, the taxes for Rome, doing his job, and Jesus said, put that down, come and follow me. Matthew did. There was another fellow who came and said, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want, to, I want to be one of your disciples, but I can't do it now. He had more pressing things to do, more pressing things to take care of. Jesus said, if you want to follow, you can't follow me unless you come now. There's always the urgency of now when it comes to God's work. God's work has a timetable. It's always one point in time, always one place there on the clock, which is now. Do it now. Salvation and service are urgent matters. Now here's, here's another thought I had about Bezalel and the grace of God when it's infused into the work. 
Sometimes when we work, we work very slowly. Projects that we have might linger on for a long period of time. We take our time. Sometimes it's because we don't know exactly what we're doing in a building project or something like that. And so as we do it, we use trial and error. That's the way I put together IKEA furniture. I mean, you know, you get the instructions, and they're in Swedish or Danish or something. You can't understand them anyway. So you just get started on it. You start putting things together. And what happens to me, invariably, every single time, it's Murphy's Law. You know how it goes. You get down to almost the last piece, and you discover that thing's upside down. So you unscrew it all, take it all apart again, you start all over, get it right, and that's the way we put that stuff together. Well, I had this theory about Bezalel and Aholiab. I believe that God wanted his work done and over with. God, God doesn't want a long time to finish this project. Uh, there's a the building to make. There are multiple beautiful furnishings that go with it. And God didn't want a five-year building project. And so my theory is that God gifted them to do it right the first time. So that you didn't walk around the camp of Israel and find a big pile of discarded prototypes. Now I think they put it together with no errors. This piece is supposed to look like this. And that's what it looks like after it's built the first time. This board needs to be flush and plumb with that one. This cord needs to pass smoothly through this loop. These cherubim wings are to touch at this exact spot. And when they started working on that and they were done and through, it was all perfect. Now my point here is follow God's directions. Do it now and God will give you all good success. Now our third question is how are we to do it? There's a great list of adverbs in scriptures that modify the verb do. How are we to do God's work? Faithfully, unceasingly, steadfastly. Fervently, diligently, willingly, kindly, peaceably, honestly, fully, charitably, boldly, perfectly, earnestly, abundantly, godly, gladly, zealously, circumspectly, heartily, justly, unblameably. Some of you might have got lost two words into that list. And there are more, not grudgingly, not spitefully, not deceitfully, not foolishly, not dishonestly, not slanderously, not uncertainly. I think we have a long way to go to catch up with Bezalel and Aholiab. And if you look at this list, all these things, the abundantly, godly, gladly, zealously, circumspectly, hardly, and blamably, all of that, doesn't that reflect the way that Christ served? When the Bible tells us to do these things in this way, it's because of Jesus Christ. This is the way he went about his work. He's the model. He's the one that we fashion ourselves after. We are made in his image when we become children of God. And so we do the work exactly as Christ would do it. That's what he calls us to do. So the way that Christ's work was always to magnify his heavenly Father. So it's always going to be done the right way. So my point, I guess, finishing up tonight, is that God forbid that we should ever glory in the workman, but not in Christ. The pulpit is central in the church because from this pulpit, Christ is lifted high for everyone to see. And so every message is a message of work. It all goes back to Christ's work on the cross. We're God-centered not man-centered. So I would tell you, good luck saving yourself 
Because that's a work that's never been done. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we do have the blessed privilege of serving you. Just to be called a servant of Jesus Christ. There, there is no higher calling. Nothing that we could aspire for in life that would be greater than that. And then to hear in the end, well done, good and faithful servant. That's where we want to be. So we ask, Lord, for the gifts that you've given us, as you show them to us, as you tell us what you have us to do, help us not to neglect, neglect the gifts that are in us. We want our church to be the right kind of church, one who worships and magnifies Jesus Christ, and that takes all people in the membership doing what you've called them to do. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to honor you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org